The Triathlon Show 344. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Jacob Tipper. Jacob is a coach of athletes across the spectrum from track sprinters to triathletes and he's also a very, very good track and road cyclist himself. Uh, Jacob was the person tasked with putting together Alistair Brownlee's team for the Sub 7, Sub 8 project. Uh, where Brownlee was eventually replaced by Joe Skipper due to an injury. And in this episode, we discuss the whole process and uh, what we can all learn from uh, from what went into planning that epic event and uh, the performances that we saw on the day were absolutely amazing. Uh, Jacob and I ended up talking for over two hours in total, so I split this uh, interview into two episodes. So what you'll hear today is part one, where we mostly cover the Sub-7 project. And uh, next week, you'll hear part two, where we talk generally about training and coaching but before we get into the interview big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration precision fuel and hydration create sports nutrition products including both energy and hydration products and they help you use it effectively through a range of free tools services and content they have recently launched a fantastic fuel and hydration planner on their website that is a one-stop shop for figuring out an effective race hydration and fueling strategy for you it's free and super easy to use it only takes a couple of minutes to answer a handful of questions and then you get a detailed simple and effective race plan they also offer free video consultations so reach out if you're interested in that and as a listener of the podcast you can get 15% off your order of their range of electrolyte and carbohydrate products by using the code TTS22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com and thank you to Roka. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. Today let's talk about Roka's range of wetsuits and why they are such a fantastic option. First, because there is a range of wetsuits from the entry-level Maverick that is still extremely high quality but at an entry-level price, all the way up to the fastest of them all, the flagship model, the Maverick X2. All of these wetsuits come with Roka's patented arms-up technology, which maximizes your shoulder mobility so that you don't feel any restriction when you're swimming, which will ultimately slow you down if you feel that. Roka's wetsuits also have patented buoyancy profiles for the fastest possible body position in the water and if you're somebody really struggling with body position check out the mx max buoyancy suit which is the most buoyant of them all there are a ton of other fantastic features in roca's wetsuits like the exoskeleton in the maverick x2 and uh, lots of others so check them out on roca.com and visit roca.com forward slash tts for 20 percent off your order now without any further ado here's part one of my interview with jacob tipper Welcome to that triathlon show, Jacob. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm. I'm good, thanks. What? How, how have you recovered after the long time trial, team time trial that you did the other week in the sub seven, sub eight? Yeah, I'm. Ju- I'm just about getting there. I spent the weekend uh, at Leeds. The uh, I managed to blag myself into the VIP for the World Series there. So I had a weekend of spectating sport, drinking having the free drinks there and not having to kind of actually worry about the pressure of running around and looking after each other, looking after other people. So yeah, that was great. So I just about feel like I've decompressed, caught back up and yeah, ready to start this week again now. 
Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll get into the Sub7 project a bit more in just a little bit. But first, can you introduce yourself uh, to the audience? Uh, tell us a bit more about who you are and your background uh, as an athlete and as a coach. Okay. Yeah. So I'm Jacob. I'm a cyclist slash coach slash a few of the jobs all based in the UK. Um, I ride for Ribble World Type Pro Cycling at the moment. Um, I'm not a not a big time pro, but I've, uh, I've I've been around a little bit. I've got to do some cool races in. Um, I've won a stage of Tour of Chingai Lake, which is the highest altitude race in the world, or highest state altitude stage race in the world that is a pro race. That's my little claim to fame within cycling. Um, that's as far as it ever got. Um, and then in terms of coaching, I work with a few really good athletes. Uh, Dan Bigham, who is the uh, hopefully soon to be uh, our record holder, current British hour record holder, uh, and Ben Healy, who is uh, a young rider on EF Education, who you may spot off the front of pro races at the moment, doing crazy solo breakaways, and I'm I'm sure soon one of them is going to pay off, and you'll uh, see him plastered over the front of pro cycling a bit more. Nice, yeah, let's hope so. And uh, you even dabbled in triathlon, both yourself and in coaching as well. Yes, yeah, so I was a uh, triathlete as a child growing up. Um, I never did. I was never particularly good enough. My swim was lacking, and at the time, you know, seventy point three in Ironman wasn't really a route that was obvious to go down. And it was very much kind of make it as a pro or nothing. And I definitely was not making it as a pro because my swim was just too far off where it needed to be, um, which led me going on to cycling. But yeah, in recent years, I've kind of dabbled back into it. I did the outlaw half at the end of COVID when all bike racing was off. And that went all right. And then I'm currently trying to balance a bit of it now. And I was hoping for a bit of a kind of half cycling, half triathlon campaign this year. Um, unfortunately, with helping other triathletes, such as Alistair Brownlee with the Sub 7 project and then turning up to help, help Joe Skipper, uh, it's not really helped my own personal triathlon as their uh, training's kind of gone down the panel a little bit. But yeah, no, it's something that I'm looking to dabble in and do a bit more going forwards. Um, for me, I'm very, very competitive within my sport. And it's been quite difficult the last few years not seeing improvements anymore because I'm getting busier and busier with work and my coaching's going really well and I have some other jobs. I also work for Hoob Design. Um, as a con- I'm officially their head of cycling, but it's more consultancy-based around their aer- aerodynamic work and uh, they're kind of applying some of the sports science to their uh, to their products. Um, so, yeah, it's been difficult to keep seeing improvements while work has been getting busier and busier. Um and that's not very nice, you know, kind of being in what you want to be in your sporting prime and you've not, you've not seen any of your good power numbers go up for a number of years. So it's been nice having triathlon do that. So this year has been a little bit messy with training, but my swim has still been improving. My run has still been improving. It's not amazing, but when so much of your life is tailored around sport in terms of career and what your ultimate hobby is, essentially, um, it's nice to actually see some improvements because, yeah, it's i've not really seen seen them in a long time so that's been quite nice yeah yeah so uh, let's move on to chat about sub seven so maybe just uh, in case there's somebody that has missed it can you explain what the sub seven sub eight project was in uh, in short terms because i think most people are familiar with it so in short the easiest way is to compare it to nike's breaking to marathon it was essentially can can we break a world record in the sport of triathlon for both male and females. However, we did so kind of without rules as much. Like what for the, can, for the what, Iron for the Ironman distance. Yes, for the Ironman distance, sorry. So for the men it was trying to break seven hours, for the women it was trying to break eight hours. And it was kind of 
we had to have a bit of an agreement on what the rules would be. We didn't want it to be a complete farce and have like an 80 man peloton riding around on the bike or have drafting behind lorries or cars or anything. So it was, you had a 10 man pacer team um, or female pace team. And it was up to you how you use them between the swim, the bike and the run, but you only had a maximum of 10 people and you used them to help you go as fast as possible for the Ironman distance. Yeah, yeah, perfect. And uh, on the men's side, we had Christian Blumenfeld was uh, the one of the teams, and originally was Alistair Brownlee that was uh, the other team, but then he had to pull out, unfortunately, due to injury, which meant that Joe Skipper came in to replace him with just uh, 10, 10 days or eight days to, to go. And um, yeah, that was the team that you were involved with, uh, so Team Skipper in the end. And on the women's side, uh, it was uh, originally Lucy Charles Barclay, but uh, again, due to injury, she pulled out and Kat Matthews replaced her and Nicholas Pirig was uh, the other uh, the other female uh, contender so so we had four teams uh, two, uh, two in each category and uh, they were trying to break the record but also racing each other obviously and trying to be the first uh, across the line uh, compared team team against team as much as man against man and woman against woman yeah that, that was one, for me that was one of the exciting parts of it and we very much egged that up on the way into it that we were also having this rivalry with Christian. Uh, we weren't just going in and being like, oh, it'd be great if Joe happens to break sub seven as well. It was like, no, we want to beat those guys. Um, and yeah, we were very much about that. You know, it was about, let's see, who, you know, let's see who's got the quickest wetsuit. Let's see who's got the quickest tri suit. Who's got the best bike sponsors? Who is all in to win this? Uh, however you are doing it. Who's the best sports science applied? We, for us, it, this was a battle on every plane on, to, you know, who was going to win this who's going to win this. It's, it's, I think it just made it a lot more exciting and brought a lot of spice to it, that it was an actual race. It wasn't just a kind of challenge event or, you know, we were out to beat them, they were out to beat us. Um, as much as people were probably thinking, what, you were actually trying to get Joe to beat Kristen Blumenfeld? Yes, we were. Um, I, I was genuinely gutted at the end of the race. Um, don't get me wrong, like, I, I wasn't, I didn't, I, I didn't think we'd got, we definitely got the winning ticket. You know, I knew it was going to be hard and potentially well unlikely, but, we were still really up for it. That is how we all approached this. We were everyone that was in that race on every team really wanted to win that. And I think that also made it really exciting. And yeah, everyone that was there just looked like was super competitive, but also everyone loved it. And there was a lot of kind of like gamesmanship before the race. You know, we were kind of throwing shade at those guys saying that we were going to lap them on the bike. And, um, you know, like their guys would be telling us that, oh, well, uh, are you going to swim with Skipper? Because you probably could do. You're you're the same speed as him, aren't you? And you know, like we'd be having like good bit of banter between the teams and stuff. And yeah, it's made it re- being there on site was yeah actually really exciting. And we had this real good banter. And you know, when you saw um, quite famously now uh, Skipper go past Christian, you know, that, like uh, barking at him. You know, that was other than making really good TV coverage, it was also quite genuine. Like you know, Skipper wanted to beat Christian and was like, yeah. I'm going to bark at him and it might crack him. Let's see what happens. Like just, it was yeah, real good. From my point of view, it was real good sporting man on man, woman on woman. And yeah, kind of best person of the day won. But yeah, within that, there were so many other battles. You know, there was the bike team versus the bike team. There was the swim team versus the swim team. You know, it was, yeah, real, real good bit of sport from my perspective anyway. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Uh, even a week before, I wasn't sure. I was definitely interested in in it, but I, I wasn't really thinking that I would watch large chunks of it uh, actually live. But I ended up watching every second of it <laughs> uh, when yeah. when it happened. I was glued to the to the broadcast. So so yeah, very very entertaining. Um, I want to ask you then about the process that went into 
this whole project on your part and on your, and on your team's part. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about what were the steps that you took and the things that you worked on to, in terms of training and testing and uh, equipment and, and so on? And, and maybe maybe that can help us also get some practical takeaways that you learned from, from the whole process of trying to optimize many different areas of this triathlon performance. Yeah, so I think there were two quite different approaches from the different camps. Um, we were, I think Alistair came into Hoob um, probably about 12 months ago or so, sat down with me, Dan, and Dino, who's the owner, and basically said, I need this is the project we're doing, I need to go as fast as possible. Um, and then, yeah, I kind of, as Dan went off to Ineos, I then kind of took over the bike side of things. It was my job to kind of get all that organised. Thankfully, we kept Dan on as a rider, and he still helped uh, pitch him with all his aero stuff. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of the way that we approached it, it was very much, we went as much as possible for guys that we knew could do this very specific effort. So half the guys that were there were formerly who bought by KGF. Um, so they, they, they'd got this experience at riding close on the wheel, doing kind of team time trial based efforts. We've got, you know, Harry and Char, you know, Harry and Dowsett, John and Dan had all been world TTT, um, contenders uh, racing with Great Britain there and then a couple of other lads that were in, were in the setup I just had you know, they did a train with us so I had a lot of faith in their ability at riding a, a team time trial essentially so we picked guys that were kind of tailor-made for this and um, I very much went under the idea of road riders are also a lot better at this than time trialists in my opinion I've done team time trials before when I'm not the best time trialist in the world by any by any means, as a as a racer, I was a sitting sprinter. But a team, I definitely perform better in a team time trial than I would in an actual time trial because there's that ability to punch hard on the front and then recover on the back. And I think a lot of time, just pure time trialists, aren't quite as good at that effort. That's not kind of where their strengths lie. So for us, it was pick, like picking guys that were super fast, super aero, but had also got this road background. So they've got this ability to, to do the over unders that's required. Um, and yeah, and then in terms of optimizing. Again, we tried to as much as possible pick guys that I knew would be fully optimized. So on the Christian team, they were quite limited. It was, they, they didn't kind of have the same, so maybe quality of riders outright, but then they put, they spent more time training together to make up for that. And then they were response limited with the bikes that they'd got and the kit that they'd got. Whereas our camp was, well, I can't get Dowsett to come and train with us because he's at the Giro. So we knew that we'd do all our kind of optimization in terms of riding together in that last week because I knew that the guys had got that background already. But we all had got the freedom to change stuff sponsor-wise. So in the few weeks leading up to it, it was just a case of buying as much of whatever the fastest components that people were already missing off their bikes. So wax chains, oversized ceramic jockey wheels, um we borrowed some faster front wheels when it was needed, optimizing front tire, rear tire, chain rings, um, making making sure everyone's on one by chain rings, things like that. Then with Hoob, we made sure we'd got um, the fastest skin suit with kind of uh, def- different base layer technology. And then most lads already optimized the kind of helmet to skin suit interaction. A lot of guys already tested that, but we did. Um, while we were there, we had access to this essentially massive velodrome, which we raced around for the entire time. So we also did the last bit of helmet testing and position testing on certain guys when once we were at the track. But it was with guys that I knew were already pretty finely optimized. You know, we didn't we didn't want to. The thing with aero testing is, if we just took power houses there that weren't aero and just hoped that we, you know, 
a month before we do a load of error testing and hope that it all turn out aerodynamically. That's definitely not guaranteed. You could do that and some guys would respond massively and you could take some big unit and it turns out you can get them super aero. And you'd have some guys who just wouldn't, like almost wouldn't improve at all. Like quite in my time at, um, on the track team, I almost found no what's who aero testing. I was like the only one. Everyone else found what's, whatever we did, Dan would test Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and then suddenly find three watts at each one of them. And I'd do a full day aero testing and find nothing. So some people are, are always likely to find these kind of improvements while other people don't always. So it was also important to make sure that we had guys that were as close as close to what we needed as possible. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm going off a long one on this one. Um, and then in terms of what we did from there, optimize. So, so, so we basically got these amazing riders, loads of power, super aero. We had them fully kitted out in the fat light in the fastest skin suits, made sure all their bikes was optimized as possible. Um, so then the last bit really was, on the week leading up to it, we did a load of modelling in terms of just seeing what everyone's CDA was at the front, what everyone's CDA was, and draft efficiency sat further back through the line. And then through that, and this was uh, this is where I left it down a little bit. Um, we went through and we found like we just went, you know, what the kind of power requirements would be for the speed we wanted to ride, and basically who was capable of that and who wasn't capable of that. In we actually went there with 10 guys. So we took two spare riders. So we'd got enough people and actually we actually had to use that data to, to decide who was in that team of eight as well, because other than, you know, Dowsett, Dan and Harry and stuff were a little bit above everyone else because they are super strong. But after that, the other five, six guys were like pretty much all the exact same ability, almost all the same air owners. So we actually had to use this data to help select the last couple of riders and, and kind of take a bit of a, a little bit of a best guess. Cause obviously this model is based on, in the end, your three-hour total power, which there is very limited performance models on. Um, so, and you know, no one actually knows. No, not, no one's ever done a full gas three hours all out, or not many people have anyway. So, a little bit, you know, especially well, not with over unders anyway. Maybe by a few people doing hundred mile time trials, flat like flat paced, but not with massive spikes. So, yeah, we then had to go and try and best best work out who what, what we thought everyone could do, how we thought they'd back it up at the end, and kind of just put this formation together as well because that was another important part. When you've got someone like Dan in the team, you have to try and make sure that someone super strong can sit behind Dan. Because rough, roughly speaking, this is from experience, when you sit behind Dan, whatever power Dan is doing, you are doing sat behind him. He's so a hero. And it means if you're sat second wheel behind him for like a 10 minute, like a, as a what we're we doing, like six minute, six minute turns, then you could be, you could get found to be in a lot of trouble. And if you end up hitting the front after just doing the same turn that Dan has done, because he's so, so aero. Um, so yeah, we basically just put all that together, optimized all that, worked out what the strategy was going to be. And then on the day we just went for it and yeah, we, uh, delivered, delivered, well, the guys delivered an, an amazing ride and yeah, backed up exactly what we said we were going to do. You know, the, the times that we, that we said are, are literally the times that me and Dan kind of picked up off the top of our heads. Um, when Alistair first came in 12 months before, you know, Alistair comes in, oh, what time can we do? Is it, you know, sub three, can we do sub three forty five? And me and Dan were like three fifteen, three twenty. We'll smash it. Just complete confidence. For nothing to back that up. We just decided that's what we could do. Um, and yeah, and, and as it turns out, that's basically what we did do, which was, yeah, really nice when you saw all the people that had kind of slagged Joe off on social media being like, is he going to do 320? He'll never do that. He'll never average that speed. And yeah, the guys absolutely smashed it. So yeah, really happy with that. Yeah, and just all went really well. Yeah. Did did, uh, did you do any aerodynamic 
testing for Joe as well, or any optimization with with his setup, even though he was uh, at the at the back of that train of riders. Uh, because I, as you said, you chose riders that were mostly uh, already close to fully optimized but maybe somebody like joe especially coming in so close to the actual event without preparation had some gains that you could find there in the last week did did, did you find that that was the case so we, we put a few little things on joe's bike again we optimized his setup so part of it was literally calling up and um, we got his we give his agent a boot and said call ceramic speed get them a get him some jockey wheels. So we ended up with a brand new aero ceramic, uh, over, um, ceramic speed oversized ceramic jockey wheels. Um, I think we put a bigger chain ring on him. We'd, we'd already got a wax chain that was there ready for Alistair. So that went on his bike instead. Uh, we put some calf guards on him that Hub had already made. So that they went on him. I don't know if uh, DHB know that, but breaking it uh, a bit late now. Um, and then, yeah, the, the rest of it, his position was pretty limited, to be honest. What was, I think that we had more gain through actually just, working on his draft efficiency. So he probably did a bit more on the bike than really he should have done in a week leading up to an Ironman. But it was actually a case of him just learning to get real close on that wheel behind. And th- there was more to be found through improving his draft efficiency than there was through necessarily just trying to find a watt or two in, a, in an optimised position. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we, the, the, what we just did, and ultimately we, we didn't have that much time to change things and to do error testing. You know, it, it got all this to do. It, you know, it'd come over like relatively unprepared in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, there was in the middle, in the middle of sessions, agents were dragging him away and taking him off to press conferences and stuff. There wasn't, we didn't have loads of time to do stuff with him. So yeah, we optimized what we could. You know, I think we had put different tires on as well. That's another one we did with him. But, you know, most stuff we actually, in terms of his actual position, it was roughly where it was. We instead, we used our energy to work out what he was doing behind, how we could smooth it up for him. So we'd do a little bit, you know, there was a few times that we were maybe like booting through a bit too hard and straight. So we worked out if we smooth that, does that make it easier for Joe? If we ride with the sweeper in front of Joe, does that make it easier for him? And actually from an aerodynamic perspective for Joe, that was actually again more about what the team did around him to kind of lower his power requirement than it was about actually doing too much with him himself. Hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, and uh, yeah, if we could talk a bit more about the how yeah the tactics in and of, uh, that you used in uh, in the team trial time trial setup. So so you said that you did six minute turns and uh, and you ended up using eight riders that were always on the course. You didn't have people taking rests uh, on the side of the course and then switching back in, which Christian's team did do. So there was a difference in tactics there. Um, yeah, can you talk more about about that? And for example, things like for you, for example, what, what was the the power that you had to do at the at the front, and then how did that compare to what you did when you were not at the front when you were uh, when you were back in the in the peloton? So roughly on the front, you were looking at what at your ten mile ten mile time trial power is what we were describing it as. So about four twenty watts for a lot of the lads is what they were is what they were pushing on the front. And then by the time you kind of swung back and got to the back, you taught, you were looking at for most people about a 45% uh, reduction in power in terms of your draft efficiency. That's how much you saved being sat seventh, eighth wheel. So in terms of what's, what, what's that is. So basically at 250 to kind of 280 watts, and then that would gradually creep up as you got through the line. So once you were in sec, back in second wheel, and for John Archibald, who had John in front of him, he was basically at race power when, like when he was sat behind. Dan, but for most people, when you're sat second wheel, that's then down to like twenty percent, twenty five percent in terms of your draft efficiency. In terms of turn length, that was actually a little bit of playing with it and working out 
so what's really important in team time trials and these kind of events, and we learned a lot of this through our track time, and this is something we made a lot of mistakes with in our first few years on the track, is you do you never want the input the golden rule is do not park it on the front. Whatever you do, do not park it because if you do, then that the person behind has to accelerate. But not only do they have to accelerate, everyone behind them has to accelerate as well. As if, as if you maintain a constant speed, that whatever draft efficiency everyone's getting behind is, you know, that's preserved. They're getting 30, 30, 35, 40% draft efficiency. But if there's an acceleration in there, they still have to match that acceleration energy. So you never want deaccelerations, accelerations. So the turn strategy was roughly what could the guys do on the front without starting to basically park it up? Um, was the easiest, was the, the, the basic way that we started to look at it. So we just played with it in training, played different turn lengths. So for most people, that was actually just a half lap. So, and the thing with a half lap is you could actually change in the banking as well in the same way that you would with a track. So a lot of lads did a half lap and then Dan was, there was only Dan and uh, Dowsett and a few others that did a full lap. So a full lap was six minutes, a half lap was about three minutes. What it meant then was you could actually use the banking to save some energy and then use that energy to drop back in and drop back into the line. Whereas if you go out to the side, if you go out to the side and let the kind of other guys come past you that way, you're obviously deaccelerating as you're going backwards and the team are coming past you. Then you have to reaccelerate to get back in. And for people that have done chain gangs or team time trials before, you'll actually know sometimes the hardest part of that isn't the turn on the front. It's actually the when you're going backwards and then jump back into the line that's then going forwards again. That can be the really hard bit. So having the banking like kind of helped reduce that. So that was one of the things we did. And that was actually one of the reasons why we didn't do laps out as well. We reckoned we, we, we through kind of playing with a few different scenarios, we thought it was almost as easy for the guys to change properly, drop back in at the back of the group than it was to actually drop out, come to a stop. And then when you come back on the track, only like, you know, I think the Bottrell guys were doing it what, 10 minutes later, they have to go from naught to 50k an hour. That's a pretty big spike in energy that you've got to get reaccelerated and get going again and then drop back into the line and obviously that energy is not in any way helpful or conducive to the team going faster you using energy to accelerate yourself by yourself in the middle of the track does not help your team go faster whereas the energy that say Cy Wilson is using when he's sat man eight in the line that is useful because that is also offering more draft to Joe behind so when so he's just sat there doing nothing he's actually still helping because he's just providing uh more draft for Joe if that makes sense so and for our guys you know they're 250 watts in the wheels that 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 is recovering that is you know that is you you are using energy we have to make sure our guys are really on top of fueling so we had camelbacks down people's fronts with I think a mix of 80 to 90 grams of carbs in there and then people were taking gel so all the guys were kind of consuming somewhere between 100 to 120 grams of carbs so we're per, per hour, that is. Per hour, sorry, yeah. So there's a lot, of, you know, there was a lot of energy being expended, but they were definitely recovering when they were sat in that position towards the back. So by the time they did that, it was almost as easy to recover, offer Joe more draft than it was to go get off the track, use a load of energy, reaccelerating again. You know, we, like, we'd looked at what the different one of the things that helped us make that decision is again this rule situation. We weren't sure what the rules are. We obviously couldn't give a sticky bottle to anyone in the pace line. We couldn't just give Joe a bottle and just like rag him down the straight, that would be cheating. But, but obviously the rules aren't conventional rules. So we were like, oh, well, can we just can we just give the paces a sticky bottle and just throw them back up to speed again? And if we'd been able to do that, then maybe we'd have actually would have utilised 
taking the laps out because there wouldn't have been that well the loss in energy would have been made up for by the car providing it re-providing the energy rather than the rider having to do it but that wasn't allowed so again we just stuck with the formation we went with yeah yeah yeah. and what was the the race like the power profile like for joe sat at the back of that peloton i think joe was 305 310 watts the important thing that we were trying to do was not cause these big spikes which on the day it was the the conditions are quite equal there was no big headwind no big tailwind so it wasn't too bad some days in training there's a real big one real big headwind straight one real big tailwind straight which to be honest would probably have suited us more for taking time out of christian because our guys like i say could really have punched that headwind section i think bad conditions would have suited our guys more the fact that it was really good conditions probably actually negated some of the benefits we could have had over the other team but sort kind of thing um but when we did have that then joe we'd we would accelerate from say 52 up to like 60 62k an hour on this tailwind section and that that would cause joe some difficulty that kind of 10k an hour acceleration which as we said earlier if it's acceleration energy he has to match it even though it's in the tailwind and he still has to do that extra spike so That was hurting him a little bit. So we were trying to avoid anything like that, but the, the smooth conditions kind of helped. But yeah, so Joe was, I think he said it was, his power meter was a little, his, somewhere between his power meter and head unit, it was a, a few little dropouts, a few little things. So we haven't actually got a perfect bit of energy, a perfect bit of power data from him. I think he reckons it was slightly higher than he'd ever done before, which is then amazing that he ran a marathon PB off a spikier, more power, Yeah, more with more power than he'd ever done before is yeah crazy. What I'm showing, like how amazingly he really did that day. But for Joe, it was it was a high risk strategy. You know, it was with Alistair, it, it was different. With Alistair, he we'd got before we can work to these watts. This is what Alistair has worked out that he can run the marathon time he wants to off. So it was going to be about not just going fast, but making sure it was optimized around Alistair. So we'd probably, I think, so Alistair had done a lot of work in terms of his draft efficiency would have been a lot better on the back than Joe's because we'd got him doing motor pace and we'd got him going out sat behind Johnny. He'd worked on that a lot. So I think to be fair, and, and we'd done a load of aero testing with him. So I think the, t- the team would, could probably have gone about the same with Alistair on the back, but I think he'd have been doing less watts. So he'd still have been in that same balance of, it'd have been about how fast can the guys go. But let's say, yeah, it with Alistair, let's say, let's say I decided he wanted to try 20 watts less because he knew exactly what he could do and he you know. We knew he'd taken advantage in the swim. We know he's a slightly stronger runner. Then at that point there, the, the strategy may have changed a little bit and it may have been about how fast do we go while preserving Alistair. Whereas with Joe, it was it was high risk. He knew he wasn't, he knew he wasn't going to beat Christian on out-to-out run. No one, I mean, he's not daft. We knew we had to take advantage on that bike section. So it was simply a case of let's just go for it and see what happens and, and let's make a real, let's make a real race out of it. Let's, If we, if, you know, if we go past them, we go past them hard and it rattles them, they could fall apart, they could get tired and touch wheels, they could, you know, Christian could go out too hard in the run trying to chase someone, trying to, you know, and it could it could then fall back into Joe's favour. So it was really a case of, you know, if it'd been if it'd been doing 350 watts in the back, we'd have to we'd have to have slowed it down, obviously. But the fact that he was like, This is about right, I reckon I can do this, it gave us the freedom to just kind of go for it, to be completely honest. And that was the great thing about Joe to be honest obviously we all found out on the friday before that alistair wasn't in the event 
I, I basically called around everyone and said, look, guys, do you still want to come? Because you know, part of the, of the appeal was, you know, you're riding for Alistair Brownlee, you know, OG of triathlon. And, but all the lads were like, no, I'm still down for it. I'm still going to go. It's still all good. But imagine if we'd got there and then the guy had, and then Joe had gone, oh, I want to ride steady on the back here. You've all got to ride real slow and not go that fast and not enjoy yourself. Like, I think it had been rubbish. So I think it was really good that Joe was just like, you guys do your thing. Let's take the advantage out of, Christian while we can and let's just see what happens and he just he just you know completely free spirited with it and yeah it really helped us enjoy it and get the most out of it yeah we, we talked uh, in a previous conversation about how there, you still had even with the smooth conditions on the day you you still had or joe had to do certain spikes uh, certain accelerations and part of that was maybe that he didn't have enough time to train on the uh, draft efficiency but also you mentioned things about how at those high speeds, the pedaling kinematics can cause spikes beyond what you can just see in, in the power itself. So can you talk a little bit more about that and, and also how that might impact just generally cause fatigue, but also, and of, of course, in that way, impact the run? Yeah, so this is something that cyclists do a lot more of, which is essentially motor pacing work. When you are at a, when you're at a higher inertia, so essentially just at higher speed or you know, you're in a big tailwind section, etc. The way that you pedal actually changes, so you start to apply more torque at the top at the, at the very start of the pedal stroke. Whereas when you're on a on a long descent, when you're on a long climb, sorry, and you've got low inertia because you're going slowly, you apply pedal, you apply power and force the whole way through the pedal stroke. Um, now, power meters don't always pick that up, or not all power meters do, because if you're just spiking at the start of the at the start of the uh, at the pedal stroke. There's literally not always enough sensors within your power meter, enough strain gauges that really pick that up or kind of record that high enough like hertz as such. So it's definitely something that if you ever go, that riders, like cyclists will experience this. If you go motor pacing, your power is low, but your heart rate is high. You're doing a lot of damage and hurting yourself riding at these higher speeds in a much more kind of choppier way. But it's about going fast, and that's and that's kind of the important thing. I think that's where I say, I think in terms of what's the what's the what's the le- the lesson that cyclists, that triathletes, or the listeners from this could learn, is that when if you go and do a super fast Ironman, do you go and do a man which is straight through a desert and super fast and nothing to slow you down, and you're riding forty five k an hour, but you've spent all winter riding around the UK on a super slow winter training bike at fifteen mile an hour? And you're, or you just do turbo and erg mode with a super low cadence that suddenly when it comes to it, you're going to find riding at that high speed difficult because you've, you may have practiced the power at roughly the same cadence, but you've not been pedaling the same way. If that makes sense, you've not, you've not been distributing the torque in the same way, you know, potentially for the eight months before. So I think it is super important that guys go and practice guys and girls go and practice riding at the speeds they will be racing at as well because there is that change in inertia there is that change in pedaling kinematics and again that was something that we'd already thought about and that's one that was a second benefit of why we'd got Alistair doing motor pacing was that he was became super became really efficient at riding at 50k an hour in draft because that is very different to just going out and just churning long hill reps long hill reps or maybe at the same power it's just you're not pedaling the same way so it's just really important to kind of match like match that and get that the same um i think that's definitely something that a lot of riders get wrong if you do spend too much time on the turbo um you know which i understand some people have to especially in the winter you know with a lot of other commitments but when race season does come and or summer does come and the ability to go outside 
finally occurs and you know, the daisies are out and the sun's out and you get a little bit of time on a weekend to ride, I do think it's really important to be able to get that time spent riding at those higher speeds that you will be racing at. Mm. Yeah, I think that's uh, th- that's a really interesting uh, interesting point you make there, and and definitely makes makes a lot of sense. But something that I I think is yeah not not a lot of triathletes necessarily think about because it usually that's maybe more relevant to cycling where speeds are a lot higher. But as you say, when you go and do these really fast courses in particular, then uh, or even if it's just somebody going and doing an Olympic distance race or a sprint distance race that is fairly flat, then of course, due to it being shorter, you can go at a higher power and maybe then you reach those higher speeds. And yeah, that could be the same the same kind of effect that if you are then doing something that you're not used to at all, even if you're used to the power, then then even then that could that could impact your your run at least make you lose those ten seconds. That is the difference between maybe making the podium or not or whatever your goal might be in that race so so i think that's a a super interesting point and um yeah something something i'm interested in reading a bit more about and learning more about um in terms of the battle between the teams uh, is there we talked about the bike uh, a lot is there anything else in in terms of the bike that you want to mention that uh maybe that you did that the other team didn't think about or in the swim and the run as well some something that uh, that you think were worth highlighting yeah so obviously coming on to the project late there was only so much i could well joe coming in late there's only so much i could obviously work around what joe had been doing alistair had been away doing his own stuff his own isotope te- uh, tracing or testing in terms of like seeing how many, how many carbs he can absorb and all that kind of stuff you know alistair had done a lot of his own sports science that that was i was just the bike he was the overall project was joe obviously hadn't done all that um so it was a case of well what else that I had been involved with in with Alistair or we knew we were going to apply, could we still also take across to Joe? So, you know, with, with Alistair, we'd got some, um, we'd got some, we'd made some new prototype wetsuits, but again, Joe wasn't allowed to use them. Um, and then the, the, the best one, which is probably my proudest sports science kind of thing, if that makes sense, is, um, we had a, we had a chat with Alistair, you know, maybe a month ago or so about pre-calling. And I said, why don't we go and get, I was so, I was so proud. I'd, I'd had this idea for months. And I was finally like, right, I'm going to tell Alistair my great idea. And this call I was like, mate, we're going to get super soakers, these, these cool, like brightly colored water pistols, fill them with water and ice. And we're going to squirt the, yeah, we're going to squirt you a lot. <laughs> Your bike pace is going to squirt you, cool you down. This is going to be a great way of like really getting, of like really taking advantage of these additional rules that we're allowed to bend for this event. And yeah, I was kind of really up for it. And then Alistair trumped me and went, I've got a much better idea. It says, look at your WhatsApp. And then he pulls out this, um, this weed killer <laughs> that he'd found on Amazon. And he was like, this will work even better. Um, and then that's where the story of weed killer man came from which was a uh, joe's mate who basically ro- rode around with this weed killer spray thing and essentially just applied a cold mist to joe just throughout the bike throughout the run sorry and just literally kept him cool which when it was 27 degrees which is you no know, super hot um it definitely helped him and he said all the way through was like that was an absolute game change and that made such a difference to his cooling ability and and yeah and ultimately we were the only team that had kind of thought of that solution so um you know the the Blumenfeld team, which is you know, super science. You know they've everyone knows about their you know, their approaches with lactate, and then um, they or was it Christian put out a thing in Try Two Four Seven the other day saying that they're going to start measuring his poo samples and all these different things. You know they're super into the science, and he'd got all these core sensors all over him, and the core sensors would definitely have told him that he was hot because he did not have a plan for calling on the run, um, which we'd got. So yeah, that was my little 
my little win on the day was that we'd thought of that. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, as soon as they saw us doing it, eventually uh, Olav Christian's coach was out on the bike with cold bottles of water and he was then trying to do his best of them, pouring, pouring them over Christian and keeping Christian cool as well. But um, no, just, yeah, like I was really happy that we'd thought outside the box with this crazy idea and, yeah, like I tweeted after being like, we definitely weren't taught this in sports science to... Uh, to get this weed killer thing, but um, no, that was that was definitely something, and and that was that was the really fun part about this project. That's what I absolutely loved about it. That it was, it was just this big problem solving exercise of you know what you know now we've got these changing rules. What else can we do? You know, so it was that we'd got wetsuits and more buoyancy. It was that you're allowed to call people. You know, all all these different things. You know, like you know, at one point there was talk of fairings on the bike and stuff. Like, yeah, we like, we just loved this like whole problem solving idea, and you know what can we do differently and. You know, I, th- I think the fact that maybe our team had come from a, a bit less of a conventional triathlon background. You know, um, one of the people involved in Alistair's side was uh, Nigel Mitchell, who's been who's worked again heavily in cycling. Men that you know, like we we didn't actually know. We, to be honest, we didn't actually know what all the rules are for whether you are allowed to squirt someone in an Ironman run or not. Because yeah, we've not actually been there doing that. So you know, if we don't know the rules, it mean it is it doesn't it means that we've got the freedom to think of all these new ideas and think what could potentially be of use. So no, that was, uh, that was definitely one that I was really happy with and really chuffed with. And it, I sort of got a lot of coverage and a lot of love on the, uh, on, on, on the commentary. So yeah, good. enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. And, and I think that's maybe also something that we tend to underestimate in triathlon because we're used to the runs are very often warm because to have a triathlon, you need to have a certain water temperature in the first place, which kind of limits the season that you can do triathlons based on where you are. And and then, especially in Ironman racing, it takes a fair time to do a 3.8-kilometer swim and 180-kilometer bike. So then when you get onto the run, you're kind of in the heat of the day, the hottest part of the day. And uh, yeah, that's just the way it is. And of course, there are hotter and cooler races, but we never have a what in marathon terms would be called an optimal temperature, which would be somewhere around 10 degrees Celsius or, or something like that. We tend to have the double is, is very kind of normal and not, not considered a hot race at all. 20 degrees Celsius, a hot race would be at least 25 degrees Celsius. Uh, by, but that's, that's a massive difference when you even look at, looking at the sports science of how temperature affects marathon performance. Then you clearly see that when, when you get uh, not that far above 10 degrees Celsius, then you start to see a drop off in, in performance due to the core temperature uh, heating up too much. So, so yeah, to have a way to cool the uh, the athletes definitely would make a massive difference. Yeah, I, I mean, like for, like for UK athletes, I you know, I, I I can I can almost can't fathom how they can be running marathons in 25 degrees because we don't see that very often over here. And there's yeah. obviously countries that are a lot colder as well. And I was like, yeah, it's on the day it was. It, I, I was almost hoping for that we would get that hot condition so we could bust it out. You know, if, if it had been 12, 13 degrees, because, you know, the, the weather was changing all week. It rained the day before. It was a bit of a cold, rainy day the day before the attempt. If it had been that, then obviously this really cool thing couldn't, couldn't have come to prominence. Yeah, couldn't have come out. And, yeah, so I, I was almost praying for this hot weather so we could use it. But um, I definitely wouldn't have, Like, I was overheating, just filling it up with water and ice each lap, let alone trying to run with it. So... No kudos to the guy to but to everyone that was competing in those conditions. And I actually that just kind of trumped that a little bit. I saw a few people commenting after saying, you know, they really enjoyed the event, blah blah blah. But they're actually a little bit they weren't that impressed with the run times. And I was like, yeah, because it was twenty seven degrees. That's why. That's why the run times weren't all that impressive. Because sitting on the speeds, sitting on the back of the bike, 
was hot, like I say, there's, there's micro accelerations. It's a lot harder than people realized it was. It wasn't just them sat there having a disco on the back. The guys, they, the guys and girls were still having to work hard because it was work, which is worth it because that's where you took the most time. So they were still working hard on the bike. They then got into a 27 degree run. Like, so yeah, the people that were like, oh, well, the run times weren't that impressive. You try and run a ma- marathon 27 degrees and we'll see how impressive your run times are. Like, yeah, on- honestly, like the performances on the day were genuinely all outstanding. And, and that is how not, not a single athlete there was upset or disappointed or thought, oh, I'd like to have done that. You know, and that was with Christian running. You know, he ran 230. And, I, and yeah, the, the rumor around the dinner table was that he'd been saying he wanted to run like sub 225 and stuff, but the conditions just didn't allow it. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think just that's definitely something that I think people underestimate and forget the effects of you know, thermoregulation and heat, especially on running is, yeah, is big. So, yeah, another one for listeners to take away. If you're a hot Ironman, do not expect to suddenly be running amazing run times because, yeah, it's going to be tough. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, and it's been good to hear this uh, information from you that Joe, uh, for his power meter problems, seemed to have done his best power ever or close to it anyway in uh, for an Ironman of course this one was shorter in duration if not in distance the distance was the same obviously so that but but still with the the effect of the accelerations as we talked about it maybe maybe even swings out a little bit because that's something that he would not be used to from training nor racing so so yeah and and then the temperature on the run yeah I think he was very impressive uh, from from all of the athletes and uh, maybe that's a, a question to ask you as well was there anything from the other performances or even the preparations or the applications of science or equipment and so on that you were impressed by or that stood out to you from any of the other teams, so Christian or Kat or Nicola? Um, I mean, it, it, we a lot of the teams kind of kept themselves to themselves a little bit in the week leading up to it. It was like very sociable and we were all like talking and chatting. It was great. But in terms of the strategies that we all applied, we were all kind of keeping our cards to our chests a little bit. I mean, like my uh, my partner was on the was on Cat's team, um, and you know, she knew some of the things that we were doing. And I was like, keep that to yourself still, because I didn't want that to then get across to the men's team or anything, because you know they had they had friends in that team as well. So we were all a little bit coy with what we were telling each other and where where we were letting that information go. And obviously, Cat. I think like Kat and uh, had had a few, well, she'd only come in six weeks before as well. So she didn't even get her girls, her pacemakers didn't actually have their skin suits arrive. Like I was literally there when the, the skin suit, well, the, the parcel from their sponsor arrived and they were literally opened it and were like, ah, there's enough kit for Kat, <laughs> but not for everyone else. So remember she also came into this late with like limited preparation. So um, she didn't quite get the same opportunity to kind of practice some of this stuff either. Um, and then, yeah, we were kind of keeping our, we were kind of keeping things separate from the Blumenfeld camp. So whether there was too many of the things they were doing that we weren't, I, you know, I, I actually can't tell you because we were, they were hiding stuff from us. We were hiding stuff from them. All our Stravas were hidden in the week leading up to the event. Um, things, things like that. And then, yeah, I don't, we just didn't have too much to do with it, with the Nicola team, but it was just, yeah, I think, I think really it was the performances everyone executed on the day were just, yeah, for not like, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I actually thought Nicola was, was, also really impressive i didn't think that um their team looked like the way that we'd seen them in training i didn't think they were going to go as, as well on the bike as they did and um, they had a couple of a uh, couple of time trial girls that also performed really well on the day and it like it, 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 it's a, like from a side perspective this is this was bizarre to me like, like we are very much if you don't win the race you just kind of it's it's, it's rubbish you know if, if your teammates were 
Bahani or something, you don't win the race and you get on the coach. You could have worked all day, you get on the coach and you have him shouting at you, the deer shouting at you, and it's rubbish. And cycling is like this really harsh, cutthroat world um, where, you know, if, if it's not a win, it's rubbish and, you know, you're useless and, yeah, or like, you know, oh, well, I've done my, I've done my job, I'm taking my weight, my paycheck, and that's it. Whereas on, this was a, for me, was a, like amazing that everyone took something from this the swim paces, the run paces, the bike paces. Everyone came away from this like so chuffed and so like, really happy with performances they'd all put in and it was yeah like to me this was a new world and it meant a lot of our guys actually really enjoyed this like Alex Dowsett really enjoyed this like I I I was worried that I kind of got these great group of riders together and then at the end of this they were going to hate me and be like how has he roped us into doing a hundred mile team time trial that was horrific why did I do this that was awful that's literally what I thought was going to happen I was a little bit worried that I'd got my mates and I thought my mates gonna kill me for this I've got them to do this horrific event <laughs> but they all loved it everyone every athlete there genuinely loved this event so much and this was like a really new thing for me and actually going to an event where 40 athletes come away happy like i've never been at a race where 40 people have where 40 athletes have been happy at the end of it there's normally a quick few people that are happy one team that's one that are happy maybe a guy that's got in the break that's happy and a lot of miserable faces around the dinner table so i think just that alone was yeah, really interesting um but yeah, what they all did sports science wise was again, there were, there were definitely a few of the teams that probably kept things up, like hidden away, but that's still the way it was. There was, it was a, in a fun way, people were keeping these little tricks to themselves. But I, I think, I think that just added to it. I think that just made it good fun that it was, you know, it really was us versus them. And, you know, on the men's team and the women's team, they were, they were friends, but they were out to get each other. And I just thought it was, it definitely added to this whole event. Yeah. And, uh, uh, to to wrap up a little bit around the sub seven sub eight, uh, what are some things that you think that listeners on the podcast could take away and maybe apply themselves to help improve their triathlon or cycling performance? So I think it's a case of doing what we've always done, which is you kind of whenever you come away from performance, you just be super critical with what can you do differently to improve. Every event is a problem solving exercise. You have you know it's not just a case you know you have limiting factors you have things that limit you you know the fact we have eight riders not 12 riders or 15 riders to help us out that you only have so you know there's there's always set parameters that you're working within you know you might not have the world's biggest budget towards your next event but it every event you're doing should be a case of breaking down what can you do differently what can like so we've we've done this before i think dan's been numerous podcasts where this is what we did after track world cups we literally did we we did rubbish and we got dropped to went right here's a list of 20 things we can do differently and you know like the easy one is start with a bike you know have you optimized your tires have you optimized your chain rings have you got a wax chain have you got oversized stomach jockey you might not be able to afford all those things but if you you know if you look around enough you'll see what are they worth and how much it's how, how much it's costing you you know there's plenty of resource out there bicycle rolling resistance will tell you you know what tires roll the fastest you can see how much they cost and you can go well that will save me four watts and cost me 80 quid and you might go well an oversized ceramic jockey wheels they they also claim to be three to four watts but they're gonna cost me 400 quid so i'll prioritize one that's gonna work for me first you get the tires then you get the ceramic jockey wheels after that um and you just go through and you work out you know what you can do differently to make you go faster did you bottle it because you were too hot on the run okay is your if your next run's hot you need to do heat work you know you can't just do the same thing and expect like you know if you, if you do the same thing and expect different results then yeah you're, you're, you're on a path to failure you need to do things differently um you know from a fueling strategy when you finish a race sit down look go what did i eat 
Like, was that enough? Could I have done more? Um, how could I have done more? What could I have done differently? What should I have done? Should I have had an extra bottle on the bike? Should I have had, you know, all, there's all these different things. You know, could you be more aero? Like, what would happen if you did more power on the bike? You know, I, th- I think it's just, that, that, that's what we did. We stripped this event. And we said, you know, all the different things we can do. So it was, you know, can we have more buoyancy for the swimmers? Now, I understand the average pe- the average person can't, you know, you're not allowed an illegal wetsuit for your swim. But are there things you could have done differently? Do you need to work on your open water swimming? Do you need to work on specifically the fast start of an open water swim? Because there's a lot of all these nuances when it comes to race day that you do not practice in training. Like, you know, is that like, you know, you go off in a big pack, you sprint out, and then you try and swim after a horrible sprint to kind of get yourself out in some clean water. But a lot of people don't practice these things, and like, which is, you know, I make the mistake once, that's fine. But after an event, go through and go, what could I have done differently, and work out a plan of how you're going to integrate that differently into what you're into into your event. And I think that's just very much something that I understand. Not everyone's got the same. You know, you haven't all got Dan Bigham to do like an, an exact. This is the power requirements of what I should be doing for today. But there's still definitely things that you can work out. You can do. You can have this. What I just say is this list of all the things you can do to improve, and then you work out how do you put that into you know, how do you put that into place before your next event. Um, and it might mean saving up. It might mean that some of those gains are expensive, and they're going to take you a little bit of time before you can afford them. You know, if it's trainers or whatever it is. But I think it's still just worth. I think a lot of people don't do that in sport. Full stop. I mean, we like triathlon side can we all love slagging off say football and our oh, footballers are overpaid blah, blah blah that's a rubbish sport footballers on a monday they sit back and they look at their performance on a weekend so they have a full analysis team and they break down the full performance of what they've done a lot of triathletes a lot of cyclists a lot of stuff you get you, that does not happen you do your race and then it's like job done it's like no that's actually that's the time that you can learn the most you can learn more on that kind of post-race analysis by splitting stuff down and working out what you need to do and what you can do differently to kind of get you to your next thing like that's literally the thing i enjoy the most i must enjoy like i wouldn't say i enjoy failing but i enjoy that planning for like what is the next step and and that's all this was this was just a big plan of you know big like all what are all the things that we can do to go faster and how do we put them all into place and yeah and it's it seemed to go all right i mean we didn't we didn't have a, we didn't have a basis for this to have, we didn't have an event first to get it wrong with but we just applied the best logic that we could and, and just and just went for it and had this big list and we applied it and we tried to make everyone go as fast as possible. Yeah, no, that, that's a fantastic, a fantastic tip, fantastic advice, and uh, would make a good good soundbite to uh, to save and use in coaching, for example. Um, where, where are there some things that you have now with the event happened a week uh, ago or eight days ago? Uh, have do you already know some things that you could have done better and uh, go, go even faster? again we're all nerds so the first thing that we did was go can anyone actually go sub six (laughs) like you know like we like i I think the answer was no but you know like the first thing we thought was you know well actually how much quicker could you go what if it had been a 12 degrees run and somewhat you know and christian could have ran a 225 or and you know and the first thing we did was we did try and work out that that you know like what what can we do differently i i I don't think in I i think on the bike yes there's thing there's there was little things we could have done, you know, on the ride between the lake and the track. Did we cut every corner? Did we take that fastest line through each corner? Um, you know, just, just like that's not, not proper corners in like when the road swings left or swings the right. No, we didn't. So, right. So that's, that, that's one, like how much is that saving? I don't know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, but you know, it's not like an half an hour off, but you know, then we got on the track. We, we, 
the coverage makes it look like we actually dropped all in quite nicely, but we actually didn't. We made a little mistake there. Um, so that was another place we could have saved energy. We then basically, like the way that getting together worked was Sai then ended up behind Dan. And as I literally said, he took that brunt of being forced behind Dan and basically cooked himself. So Sai then, so Sai was then like a little bit of a spent force for an hour or so because he had to sit back, chill, recover. And we didn't get to use him as the way we'd like to have because we got that formation wrong. We 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 pre-planned about, but what we'd not done is we hadn't had the, the conversation of what happens if somehow someone gets in the wrong position. Obviously, we should have worked. We should have had a signal or site. You know, we should have communicated before. So I got burnt up. How are we swapping this around? We, that did actually come on the. We actually did do that about an hour in. So I like basically got we got on the radio and was like, I cannot ride behind Dan. And eventually, we swapped it round, but it was too late. We'd kind of cooked him already. So you know, we we almost ended up like a rider short for that reason. So you know, that's another thing we could have done differently. Um, and, and and that this is how this is how we dissect it. You know, I'm going. We can. Everyone could have been on different shoes. We could have got more. Like you know, there's a few. I know not everyone's optimised that, that, which sounds daft, but that's what we've tested and we know Dan's on optimal shoes and things like that. But I know, I know not everyone there is. I reckon, I reckon we could find each person, you know, two, three, four watts by being on the optimal cycling shoes, uh, but like, which is a little bit depends on your, um, on your pedaling and, and that kind of stuff, you know, to go, right, well, if everyone's got two watts there, they could save. And, you know, and we literally just went through this whole event and, you know, I know, in terms of, you know, like obviously uh, Joe was sponsored by Hoka on the shoes, but I know um, they, they, I can't imagine they'd had time to do a load of, say, specific prototype shoe testing for Joe. So what I would have done if I was, let's say, in charge of the run project is I'd have had like, um, God knows how many, as many like different shoe prototypes as possible, because obviously at the moment the Alpha Flies are pretty much showing to be the fastest shoes on most, but like on fast people at high speeds at, you know, at Kipchoge speed. Um, but that's not necessarily the way that Joe runs. That's not necessarily the same gait that he's got. So, and we do know, and we do see there's this difference. If you do look, then people are running the different shoes work well for different people. Like the Alpha Fly, for probably for me anyway, it, it was good for me when I ran a 10K. It was not good for me when I tried to run a half marathon in the triathlon. I could tell I was like, yeah, I'm running far too slow for these to be of use. Um, but, you know, like optimizing a shoe that would have had the perfect, like, kind of drop, the perfect kind of, like, cut, like carbon plate in the right place for Joe, how much could that have saved? I think probably quite a bit. Um, but I know, like, obviously Hoka didn't decide to commit thousands, pounds just for Joe to have a, an amazing shoe and they had no idea he was going to do this. And that's, I'm not, I'm not, that's in the sense, like, in Hoka off, like, why would Hoka make shoe just for Joe? They should obviously be busy making shoes that are good for as, as many people as they can be. But if you had that budget to do, you know, like whatever you could, you know, and actually like divide, you know, that, and and this is, I think, what we do and the excitement that you know, we find through all this. You know, again, Joe didn't have the Joe didn't have the wetsuit optimized, um, with that kind of buoyancy and also buoyancy in the right places for him that would have worked. I think we could have done. I think swim strategy wise, I think when like we we definitely know we got swim strategy like not wrong, but we didn't have chance to prepare for that. Um. It was like Joe tried to swim on Alistair's hit, then he kind of dropped off a bit, then he tried again, then he was kind of just hitting Alistair, then he got eventually got Alistair's feet. Whereas if we'd, you know, if he if if he'd got someone that he trained with all the time and properly was sat right on that hip, real tight, um, you know, to get in that real draft strategy that obviously you can't really do in triathlon so much because so, like, so it sounds stupid. I only found this out the other day that basically the best place to swim for anyone that doesn't know this is right on someone's hip 
and you almost need to synchronize your arms with their arms so you're not hitting each other and you swim right up on someone's hip and it's amazing it's like drafting on the bike for the first time like wow this makes a massive difference it's so much better than just being on someone's feet but in a race if you start what it actually does is it slows that person you're with down a little bit so if someone starts doing that to you in a race you're going to just you're going to swim away from them, or you're going to hit them, or you're going to tell them, you know, you politely like get them off your hip. Um, so you can't really do that in a race. But this would have been an opportunity that if you really optimise that swim draft, you know, you, because we just have enough time to practice it. You, it, it could have taken a lot from that. So yeah, these are all the things that you know. This is this is how our brain works. We finish this and we're like, right, how many other different things in every part of the discipline? And that's why triathlon is also an interesting one for me because it adds this different. It's not just cycling's problem solving your run problem solving swim problem solving transition problem solving so yeah there's definitely things we know that we could have done we'd like to have done differently but you know sometimes it's a case of needing a you know god knows how much money nike put into breaking too i imagine it was a massive amount you know we, we didn't have a budget like that but um yeah we'd still love to have gone in and done the and tested all these different things and these different ideas and and you know and yeah that's that that's kind of our our mentality on these things and we could definitely have gone faster whether we could find enough to have overcome christian i don't know i reckon it could yeah obviously christian's not going to stand stand still but yeah if you gave us another month and we knew that christian was going to do the exact same time could we find those three minutes like i reckon we could get close i mean whether christian could have pushed on the last lap of the run and stuff or found a little bit more i don't know but yeah um i do reckon yeah there's there's always time to find there's always that opportunity and there's but yeah yeah, whether we whether we can get there in a month or so, yeah, maybe not. But yeah, in a year or so, I reckon we could get there. But then obviously, Christian will move. Christian will have moved on. There's no way Christian's going to do the exact same time either in a year's time. Let's say if, let's, let's let's say if this got rematched, but I don't think it will be. I think there's there's definitely talk of this happening again though. But um, I don't think it'll be the same format. I think they want to do a few more uh, a few more teams or yeah. I think this will happen again. So it will just be a different a different episode of problem solving because I think next time they're talking about more teams but smaller pace teams, uh, smaller amounts of paces. So that will then just be same thing but a different way of doing it. So, yeah, also mm. looking forward to that if that happens. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and for me, uh, a couple of things that you've mentioned throughout this uh, interview that, that I take away as a practical um, thing to potentially implement in future races uh, would be, well, one of the things that I found really interesting was the camelback uh, at the front of the of the skin suit. I think that's actually a really smart, uh, sm- smart method of making sure that you get get a lot of nutrition and hydration on board, but you have it in a very kind of uh, non cost uh, area aerodynamically. So, so that's that's really cool, and it's also safe compared to having bottles behind the saddle that might. I mean, how many times have uh, you heard about somebody? Yeah, I, I launched a bottle in the first five kilometers of my of my Ironman, and then I couldn't get another one, and, and then it ruined my run. It's yeah. Uh, yeah, it happens too often. So, so I think making sure that you have your hydration and nutrition in places where you don't, you actually don't lose them, is also an important consideration. Really important. So, so that was a cool tip. And then the other one we already kind of mentioned quite quite a bit or talked about quite a bit, which was the one about training at the speed that you will be racing uh to make sure that you're specifically prepared for that so that might mean bringing out your disc wheel and your your race helmet uh more often than than most people would normally do even in training maybe maybe driving a little bit to get to a to a faster flatter course similar to what your race course might be like and so on so so those were two two points that i just wanted to highlight from from my side for the listeners benefit as well yeah, no, um, that again, that was something we used to do on the track was we would train on the track with 
double disc wheel, skin suit, aero helmet, because we wanted to match the speeds that we were racing at. That was, you know, that was to us super important because the banking, you know, when you're kind of going on the tight track, especially your line changes at different speeds, the track feels different. And that's, yeah. So like we, so we always did that and we always got kind of had people raise their eyebrows at us. Like, why are you out on your race wheels? It's like, well, because we want to go fast. Um, we want to replicate, we want to replicate the, the, yeah, what is it's that, that bit of specificity essentially, isn't it? It's what people always talk about. Um, you know, you need, you do need to have that level of specificity when it comes to training. Um, and yeah, and then the camelback one. Yeah. I'm actually, I think I actually did that one at the triathlon I did at the end of COVID so I did that about a year and a half two 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 years ago and um yeah I'm kind of again I think I think that's a really cool one and again it was it's probably not as it depends on your frame so if you've got a bike that that is already got loads of hydration built into it you know so which a lot of bikes have to it's probably not as important now but I had a Scott Plasma 3 at the time super narrow super thin frame so I tested you know, what damage did the bottle do on it, and the bottle made it so slow. If you've got a really like narrow, thin, fast frame that's great in a straight line, it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. But the second you put hydration on it, it can sometimes ruin the bike. So I think it was costing me 12, 12 watts was to put a bottle on it. Well, like, I think it was like a big one-litre bottle is what I was thinking of using for this half. So yeah, 12 watts I saved by not having a big, horrible bottle on there. But the only thing is, that did happen is I actually ran off without it first time. I had to run back and go and get it because <laughs> I was like, I'm not doing my first ever half Ironman without any fluid. So I literally had to leave my bike and transition and go back and get it because I'd completely forgot because, again, I was so new. Like, it's my first ever triathlon, basically. Um, so that's, that's also something that, again, people, like, yeah, if you can, I've had this with, other, with I've made this mistake in other triathletes, is also don't throw away loads of time in transition. Make some effort to actually practice your transition. Like, it's something that I used to do as a kid. I remember just getting it, getting it right so easily. You don't have to do it a lot. Just actually practice mounting, getting your wetsuit off, putting your trainers on, what, like whatever it is. I used to just go through that motion, just like just maybe 20, 20, 25 minutes, like two or three times before like a big race. Um, and just practice literally trainers on off, on off, on off, shoes on off, on off, mount, dismount, mount, dismount. Um, and, it, and, I don't. I understand if it's your first Ironman and you're going to be doing it in like not not the super fast time. Then yeah, you don't need to race through transition, but you also don't need to give away like an extra two minutes needlessly because some people obviously will spend an extra grand on an even fancier disc wheel that's probably going to save them thirty seconds to a minute. Now you could just practice your transition and save that extra minute there as well. So yeah, that, that's probably that's probably another little one. Is that from my own I, learning? Yeah, don't forget your camel back in transition. <laughs> That, that's a great point. Uh, it, a, a couple of weeks ago, I think I, I wrote in the weekly scientific triathlon newsletter. I, I tend to write a coaching thoughts column, and and one, and I wrote about exactly that transitions and how it's something that is so often forgotten. We don't practice it. We don't even think about it as important in the race necessarily. It's almost as if we think that the the clock stops, even though obviously it, it doesn't. And it can make such a difference like you, you you've seen pl- even at the pro level you see see races where somebody might have the fastest swim bike and run time combined but finished off the podium because their uh their transition times were uh, slower than uh than the person that ended up or the persons that ended up on the podium uh, so it, it does make a huge difference i mean even just this weekend uh i had an athlete racing uh she won her race uh because even though her run was uh, significantly slower than the person in second but she had a significantly faster transition and that made her win by a few seconds and uh yeah the other example that i was going to bring up was the uh the leeds triathlon yesterday or 
this weekend as we talk, especially in the mixed team relay. I think I I know that I just sat down and observed what everybody was doing in transitions because it just it, two seconds makes such a massive difference at that level. Obviously, most listeners are not at that level. We're not necessarily talking mixed team relay racing, but it it still applies even though at a different level, like. We're, we're not talking about losing two seconds, but we're talking about how easily you can lose 20 seconds if you don't really work on transitions. So I think that's a, a great point. And it's uh, yeah, good to get to talk about transitions because it's, uh, it's something that, yeah, I, I don't, haven't necessarily talked about a lot on the podcast either. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't mean to be harsh to these like world-leading athletes that I was observing at Leeds yesterday, but there was definitely a few suspect bike mounts. And I was like, you know, like, it, like you, you wouldn't get away with mounting your bike like that in a cyclocross race. It's, I'm not, I'm, but there were, yeah, there was definitely a few that I thought you're a world, athlete, you know, you're an international athlete at this. You sh- probably should be work a little bit better at jumping onto your bike. And um, there was definitely a few that were a little bit slower than I kind of thought they would be. But yeah, I think like it, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't for, for your average listener, if your average person doing an Ironman triathlon. It doesn't. You, know, you don't. You don't need to really jump. Like work on how do you mount. How do you jump on your bike like Wout van Aert does in a cross race? That, that's that's not the input. That's not the priority for you. But I do honestly think just practicing it and going through the motions just a few times um, can really help. And if it just you know if if I if I offered almost anyone in Ironman field uh, anything that saved them thirty seconds, people would bite me. People would bite me hand off if I could say to someone, oh, "I've got this magic pill here. This will save you thirty seconds or a minute in your event. How much are you willing to pay for it?" I bet some people would pay a lot of money for just that magic 30 seconds for a minute for like for free speed. You know, that is people spend a lot of money for that. Um, and I'm like, well, all that would, all that, 30, that, that 30 seconds could be done by just practicing in your living room, taking like, you know, even just when you do your, just practicing, like when you do your open water swim, just come out, your, when you come out the water, just see how quickly you can get your wetsuit off. You might like, why not practice it every time you, every time you're doing it. Um, so yeah, just a, yeah, I won't, I won't, I won't hammer that more home anymore, but it's definitely, I can't talk because my transitions that I've done so far in my few triathlons have been terrible. So this is, this isn't, this is do as I say, not as I do. Um, but it's definitely a little bit of a pet ha- hate of mine. Any triathletes I've coached, I'm like, why are you throwing so much time away in transition? This does not take a lot of time to kind of get right. Mm. Well, you mentioned uh, the Nike Alpha Flies earlier and, and also watching Leeds yesterday. And you probably noticed that I think the the by far the most used shoe is the is the Asics the Metaspeed not the the Nike there are not that many athletes now at, at the short course racing anyway that are using the using the Nikes and I think that's just because the Nikes are pretty difficult to get into quickly they they have a tight fit for a lot of people and and are not that easy to get on when when you need to get them on in one and a half seconds and and i think that that's a main reason the the asics shoes might not be faster in in a lab test be more economical but that transition makes all the difference yeah it's as simple as that and uh yeah it's like it's i think people can apply it can be a false economy sometimes is people take too long doing one thing and they could have just saved it by just getting it done so yeah, just, just try and prioritize, you know, like on this list of things to improve, like I say, you know, you go through, you work out what you can improve on all these different disciplines, make sure you also put transition and work out, you know, where your transition was compared to, you know, maybe not the fastest person you raced against. Cause I'm sure someone's gone through an Ironman transition, like an absolute lunatic, but you know, if you're, if you're in the bottom, if you're in the bottom half, you know, there's kind of no excuse for that really. Like work out, you know, well, what can you be doing differently? And, 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 and like, this, I think it's exciting. I think you go away from this race and you go, 
oh, these are like I could actually have done this time if I just did that. I think it's quite exciting. I think you get a bit of a dopamine rush from thinking of like all these ways that you can improve and yeah, just just remember that yeah, transition is one of those things. For sure, yeah, and and I think uh, that that's something that that anybody can do for any race, any triathlon. Anyway, look at your how you rank percentile wise. For example, in your age group, if it's a big race, or in the men's or the women's field, if it's a slightly smaller race uh, for the swim and the bike and the run, but then in transition T1 and T2, and maybe the transitions put together as well is something that I uh, that I look at. And if you're ranking in the let's say top 50% for the swim, top 25% on the bike and top 25% on the run. And then in the top 75% in the transitions, then you can see that, okay, well, maybe the lowest hanging fruit, not necessarily the lowest hanging fruit, but where I need to up my game if I want to be on par with or up my general level of performance would be the swim and the transition because they are not as good currently as my bike and my run are so so that's one way of just assessing okay where are you strong and where are you uh, not as strong i hope that you enjoyed that interview or well part one of the interview uh, i found it fascinating and uh, i hope that you did too so uh, make sure you tune in to next week's part two of the interview with jacob if you want to hear more from him uh, you'll find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with all the links mentioned uh, including uh, the related episode to dan bigham that we mentioned several times uh, throughout this episode and uh, if you want to improve your triathlon performance and want help to achieve your goals then while you're on the scientific triathlon website uh, check out our options for coaching or training plans whether you're just getting started or you're trying to qualify for a world championships or trying to race professionally we have experience in all of those scenarios and we would love to discuss further uh, and help you on your triathlon journey so check out scientifictriathlon.com and contact us to discuss more Big thanks finally to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, stream skins, goggles, and sunglasses and prescription glasses. Use the promo code that you can get on roca.com for slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roca order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft long.